Hi, I'm Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee, and you're listening to Climate Futures, a podcast which interviews Harvard professors, activists, and experts on possible solutions to climate change. This season, we're tackling some issues that Kim Stanley Robinson doesn't quite get to in Ministry for the Future. This episode, we're talking about energy systems, the future of energy, and how do we model that future and how do we move towards it. And I'm really lucky to be joined by energy systems modeler and fellow Kim Stanley Robinson fan, Kimon Karamidas. Kimon, would you mind telling me a little bit more about yourself? Okay, well, I live and work in Europe. I'm uh, Greek in origin. I work in uh, integrated assessment models, uh, in particular an energy system model. So I'm an engineer by background and uh, uh, also looking into uh, economics and uh, energy and climate policy. So that involves the dismal science of economics together with engineering. Uh, and so until recently, I was working in the Joint Research Center of the European Commission. That's the research branch of the, or the science branch of the European Commission. I still work for them as a, as a consultant, and I'm particularly involved in, the, uh, in such studies like the Global Energy Climate and Climate Outlook, uh, mainly working on research uh, on uh, global and regional decarbonization pathways. And I still do research on the side on uh, energy and sustainability issues. So energy markets are obviously absolutely vital to decarbonization, but many people probably don't know what energy markets are, where energy comes from, how is it produced, and how is it distributed. Would you mind giving us a brief gloss on that? Well, energy markets are a a global market mostly. Uh, Energy is extracted and traded and transported and transformed and uh, transported until it reaches the final user. Uh, Just to give you an idea, at the world level, uh, about 80-82% of the energy consumed is fossil fuels, so oil, gas, and coal. So that's four-fifths, quite a bit. About 2% is nuclear, and the rest, 16%, is renewable energy sources. So within renewables, you have uh, hydropower, you have biomass, you have uh, wind and solar. And all of these renewables make up just 16%. So that's not a lot, despite the uh, impressive developments that we have seen in recent years. One important thing to mention is that when we say energy, people often confuse energy and electricity. When we say energy, it's as if we mean a synonym of uh, electricity or electric power. It's not the case. The uh, uh, electricity is a small part of the overall whole. So when we mean energy, we really mean everything. Uh, the energy you use to transport uh, vehicles, uh, to transport merchandise, um, the energy in industry to transform your products that you're going to consume. Uh, so it's, uh, it's a large and complex system. For trade, for instance, uh, about three quarters of oil that is consumed globally uh, is international trade. So it crosses international borders. And how is this energy sold? Well, in uh, in terms of who sells it, well, 
uh, about uh, the oil and gas upstream supply is very concentrated market. You have the top 10 companies uh, that produce oil and gas that are nearly 40% of, uh, of the oil and gas supply. These are either private companies, uh, what we call IOCs, uh, international oil companies, or uh, public companies of uh, producing countries, national oil companies, NOx. Uh, whereas uh, renewable companies are much more diverse, uh, they're much more diffuse. Uh, there's a lot of investment going on in the power grid. And uh, well, uh, one of the indicators that we're looking at, for instance, is the amount of investment going into fossil fuels as compared to renewables. And uh, renewables investment has been growing and growing in recent years. Finally, in 2021, it appears to have reached more or less the same level as uh, fossil fuel investments. And that's great news. Could I just ask you to elaborate, how easy will it be to decarbonize those different sectors, transportation, domestic electricity consumption, and so on, in terms of the economics and the technology in each sector? Yeah, each, each sector is uh, very different and it consumes different fuels, of course. Uh, so you have the uh, power generation sector, which traditionally has been uh, powered by things like coal. Uh, in oil and gas producing countries, it is being powered by oil and gas because it's cheap and available. And in uh, recent years, there has been this push towards renewables with a, an impressive um, development of wind and solar in particular. So if we consider renewables as a group, uh, it is the main, it, it is becoming the main uh, fuel that is powering the power sector. It, it's about 30% of power generation worldwide with very large differences across countries. You have some countries that have none at all, uh, some countries that are nearly 100% uh, renewables already. The in, in transport sector, it's essentially just oil and oil products. In uh, buildings, it's uh, electricity for appliances and uh, gas for space heating. So there are very different uh, energy consumption patterns uh, depending on what uh, sector you're looking at and which country you're looking at. And all this makes uh, the complexity of looking at the whole uh, system. And now in terms of how easy it is to decarbonize, well, uh, obviously there are cheaper solutions and costier solutions. And uh, again, looking at a sector level, there are uh, sectors which are easier to decarbonize and other which are more difficult. And uh, in particular, the uh, heavy industry and the international aviation and maritime sectors are the ones that are the most difficult to decarbonize. And why exactly are these the most difficult? So uh, in sectors like uh, buildings, it appears that solutions like electrifying uh, the whole thing, or even in, in light transports, uh, the move towards electric vehicles has been accelerating and there has been uh, technology developments in batteries costs that have exceeded expectations. So uh, buildings and light transport are the two sectors that look to be easier reach to decarbonize. Because when we say electrify, we implicitly mean uh, we consume electricity and we are going to decarbonize the power sector, which appears to be easier to do than other sectors. Whereas um, in heavy transport and heavy industry, uh, the uh, 
uh, well, in industry, it's the temperature that is involved that is that makes things difficult. You cannot easily electrify your process because you have very concentrated needs for high temperature. And in heavy transport, well, you have the need to be mobile, so you don't have you cannot have. Uh, a uh, large battery to carry around because batteries are heavy. And well, in uh, aviation and, and maritime in particular, it appears that the uh, solution will not be to electrify or partially electrify, but rather seek more exotic things like uh, ammonia or um, uh, synthetic fuels produced out of hydrogen. Okay, so zooming out a little bit from decarbonizing specific sectors, uh, the average person probably knows that decarbonizing, which is taking the economy from depending on fossil fuels to not depending on fossil fuels, has something to do with the Paris Agreement, which has this 2 degree or 1.5 degrees Celsius, if we're lucky, commitment. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what this 2 degree Celsius commitment is, what these Paris commitments are? So in, in Paris in 2015, uh, the international community agreed to pursue two degrees uh, to limit the uh, climate change to two degrees and uh, try to get to 1.5 as much as possible. Currently, we are at already above one, uh, 1.1 thereabouts compared to pre-industrial era. So it's getting very tight to, to get to 1.5. So indeed, what we mean by reaching this uh, two degrees or 1.5 degree uh, target is that we need to decarbonize uh, fully. Uh, human activities emit uh, greenhouse gases, which accumulate in the atmosphere, which eventually change the climate on a, on a long-term basis. And this results in this temperature change. So even if we stop now, we will uh, see the climate still uh, changing to quite an extent. The uh, climate has not reached an equilibrium point yet. So uh, acting today is urgent for uh, whatever happens in the coming decades. I should also mention that, uh, well, uh, investments have cycles. So if you're going to change your um, energy consuming equipment, you're going to make a decision that is going to result in some infrastructure that is going to be there for decades. And what actions do countries need to take to meet this commitment, to make this decarbonization happen? Are we talking regulating, investing, subsidies? Uh, you know what happens in these uh, international negotiations, the uh, the COPs, uh, is that uh, people, uh, countries, come with uh, pledges. They're really pledges. They they are not uh, bound by any international law per se. Uh, so, well, part of my work has been to. Uh, pile up these national commitments and see where that gets us in terms of uh, temperature. And indeed, if we take these pledges seriously, it looks like uh, the world is on a trajectory to contain uh, climate change to two degrees. But it's a big if. So what can countries do? Well, I can take the example of, uh, of the EU where I, where I live in. in. In the EU, there has been the setting of different targets for different time horizons. There's the 2030 package. Uh, the 2050 target is one of net zero emissions. Uh, now, on what types of policies? You know, there are many. Uh, there are policies to support uh, renewables, uh, energy efficiency, and contain greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, in the EU, there's an emission trading system. In energy efficiency, you know, there are efficiency standards for new, newly built buildings with the clear move towards near zero energy buildings. And in transport, there are things like emission standards, which uh, concern how much on average, the sales of vehicles, uh, of new vehicles uh, can emit, and this also decreases over time. So these are uh, policy signals that then push companies that 
sell energy consuming equipment or power generation to make the necessary investments in order to respect these boundaries set by policies. And if you had to pick one, what's most important? I mean, the economic theory would say that uh, putting a price on carbon would be the one uh, single policy to adopt because uh, what we want to do at the end of the day is just reduce emissions and everything else derives from it. So that would be the economically efficient, theoretically, thing to do. However, in practice, uh, there are many other things to consider, such as the speed with which things can change, climate justice, energy poverty, specificities of each uh, sector and uh, stakeholder engagement. So, you know, there are, there are many reasons why the policy mix might be different across sectors and across countries. So Kim Stanley Robinson's project is trying to imagine a world responding to climate change, but he doesn't spend too much time imagining the decarbonized world energy structure, although he does spend some time on transportation, specifically with the solar boat and airships and so on. Uh, But the structure of energy he largely leaves aside. So what do you think this decarbonized energy future, this energy structure might look like? You know, in the, in the line of work where I'm involved in, there's a, often a fixation on techno fixes. So it's often about which technology can uh, substitute whatever we're doing now without changing anything. But I think there, there is a large uh, aspect uh, that can be attributed to behavior change also, and uh, well, citizen participation, I should say rather, of uh, sobriety, of energy conservation. Whatever energy you're not consuming is one less unit of energy that you have to substitute with something else. That being said, well, what does it look like? Uh, on the demand side, you try to electrify as much as you can. So electricity becomes much more important compared to uh, today. Uh, that has consequences on the size of the grids, on the need to interconnect uh, different regions of a country or across countries uh, with the much stronger electric grid. And on the supply side, at the same time, energy supply side, you try to reduce your fossil fuels as much as possible, essentially zero. Uh, and then there are new things compared to today. There, are, um, there's hydrogen to be developed. There's uh, synthetic or electrofuels derived of, derived out of hydrogen that uh, could play a role, especially in very hard to decarbonize sectors. And would we see in this world a big difference around the corporate structure of energy? Obviously, you have geopolitical impacts too, like the OPEC countries losing power or being destabilized in a world where petroleum is less important. But would you have a difference not only in who is profiting and controlling flows of energy, but also how these companies and how these geopolitical relationships are structured? It definitely would be a world where the geopolitics would be different. A lot of geopolitics over the past centuries have been determined by energy, whereas energy, well, essentially oil and gas, really. Does that mean that we would find suddenly ourselves in a more cooperative world or uh, a world where because we are energy self-sufficient, we can uh, redraw the map, so to speak, or maybe even literally? The question for the petrostates, the ones that are really based on selling and exporting their oil and gas, uh, is is crucial because they really rely on a lot of, uh, a lot of their uh, government budget relies on selling this. Uh, now, there is a discussion discussion on whether that can be substituted by selling and exporting new fuels like hydrogen. But it remains to be seen uh, if uh, that much hydrogen will be needed and if we're not going to rather uh, electrify so much that uh, relatively little hydrogen will, will be needed. You mentioned earlier that renewable energies are more decentralized. Do you think we're necessarily on a trajectory to breaking up into small, decentralized, very local renewable companies? Or is that not the case? Could there be a similar large concentration of energy, ca- uh, especially state owned energy companies? 
Yeah, renewable sources are much more diffuse. They're less dense uh, in energy terms. So that by nature makes them more likely to be uh, less uh, concentrated in terms of uh, how the market works. Uh, there can be a lot more uh, citizen participation in renew renewable uh, production companies uh, because they're uh, less capital intensive as well. So you can ha you can imagine small local companies owning their uh, city capacities for wind and solar. Uh, so that's one vision of the of the future, but it. it it does not automatic. It's not automatic. It will not ha happen automatically just because there are renewables. You can very well imagine a world where uh, there's a uh, few companies owning the uh, re renewables production capacities as well. Actually, uh, there's uh, there will be so much uh, wind and solar needed that uh, you know the vision of the neighbor, the self-sufficient neighborhood with a few uh, small windmills and uh, PV panels on top of buildings. Uh, is one vision of the future, but uh, it will not be sufficient to cover all our energy needs. You will still need uh, large and in industry-scale wind farms or industry-scale, um, utility-scale photovoltaic farms. How do we get there? Is it through drastic political change? The the problem is so complex that a lot of the answers are systemic, systematic, and uh, uh, large investment decisions have to be made and a large uh, policy framing has to be put in place in order for the whole of the economy to move towards this direction. So uh, yes, uh, there is a role to be played by the individual, but a lot of the answers are to be provided by who sets the frame, and that's usually policymakers and the pressure that the individual puts on the policymakers. So we'll hope for the best from our policymakers. Uh, let's step away from our imaginary decarbonized world and return to reality. Are you seeing fossil fuel companies now or companies that aren't fossil fuel companies, but whose business model might be closely intertwined with fossil fuels? Are they facing certain economic and political realities and trying to adjust? For example, the narrative has mainly been that Exxon has confronted climate change, mostly by spending a lot of money on PR campaigns trying to deny it. So are you seeing companies kind of pivot to renewables or double down on fossil fuels? Uh, indeed, only gas companies have been, it, it's been proven now that they have been essentially denying and uh, trying, blocking the uh, publication of scientific findings that uh, essentially proved that climate change was happening. Uh, so there have been several waves, let's say. At some point, the larger uh, investors in uh, wind and photovoltaics were oil and gas producing companies in the 2000, early 2000s. They since divested away from that. So uh, now I think today, uh, oil and gas companies are rather positioning themselves uh, in order to uh, still be in the game with uh, gaseous fuel, so hydrogen. Uh, oil and gas and refining are essentially uh, chemical processes. So uh, they're trying to find themselves a, a role in uh, hydrogen, uh, the synthetic fuels business, uh, biofuels, um, maybe even uh, how to transport uh, CO2 that is captured and uh, how to store it on the ground. That would still involve pumps and rigs and uh, pipelines. Uh, CCS is one idea uh, that could extend the role of fossil fuels, 
on the, on the one hand. On the other hand, we have been delaying so much urgent action to reduce our emissions that it's, it looks as if it's uh, it will be essential to draw down carbon actively from the atmosphere. So direct air capture. DAX. The first uh, CCS projects are essentially enhanced oil recovery. You put uh, CO2 underground in oil fields in order to push the oil uh, above ground. So essentially, you're using CO2 to produce more oil, which is completely perverse uh, if you're looking at it from a climate point of view. But it's the first steps to uh, prove that uh, it's technically feasible to store CO2 underground. So from that point of view, it is understandable. But it can only be the first proof of concept thing. It cannot be whatever CCS becomes, because otherwise it's just not viable. Interesting. Okay. Uh, And I'd also like to talk a little bit more about your job, which is energy systems modeling, energy forecasting. What are those things and how are they done? So energy forecasting, it's rather projections. They're done with mathematical models. Uh, so it's a, it's a quantitative representation, a simplified representation of a very complex reality. So you have to make choices of what you, what you do. Well, the, the main models that are used by the IPCC today are in continuous development since the 1990s, more or less. So there's a long history behind them. There's a, a real effort for transparency and documentation of these models and uh, intercomparison across their the, the results of these different models. Um, so what do they consist of? There are different types, of course, as you could expect. Uh, simulation, intertemporal optimization, uh, input-output models with uh, social accounting matrices, general equilibrium models, uh, many types of models. And then, and then there are also the models that look at uh, climate change impacts and adaptation. My line of work concerns uh, mitigation, rather. So uh, how do we, where do we start from uh, in our energy system and how to reduce emission? Gathering a whole set of energy statistics, uh, energy consumption statistics by country, by sector, by fuel type, resources, uh, production of energy, trade of energy, energy prices as well, uh, different energy and climate policies. Uh, so you have a lot of data. Then you try to describe in a mathematical way how energy is used and how it's transformed. And you describe uh, energy end uses, for example, how much space uh, floor surface do you have on average as a in a dwelling, how much does that mean in terms of energy to, to heat that space? And then you try to associate with which fuel you typically use. And then you try to estimate what are your costs uh, for mitigation? What are your uh, options to change fuels or change technologies or change your, in the case of buildings, you know, insulating your buildings, for instance? All of these things go into a into a model, uh, you push a button, and then at the, at the end, you have a scenario with plenty of data to interpret. Uh, so there's a mathematical solution, but then the, the storyline behind it, you have to, to build it and refine it to make it sense of it. Wow, that's very clear. Uh, and where do you get your data from? Is it from the government? Well, there are whole projects around just getting the data. <laughs> Uh, but let's say that the uh, as a first approach, there are many uh, statistics that are publicly available. Indeed, availability of statistics is a, is a huge issue. The more you also look into countries where with less developed statistics systems uh, in developing countries, so you start from whatever is easily accessible, and then progressively you. Try to fill up your gaps and make assumptions. And what are the main problems that come up? Like, for example, exogenous variables that you can't possibly account for, like wars. 
well, there are a lot of uncertainties related to all the all, all these models and their outputs. Of course, I mean, I would be a, a lie to say that there are no uncertainties. Uh, there are a lot of uncertainties on the data itself, the input data. Uh, there are uncertainties on the projections and what they're based off, uh, based on. Uh, often in uh, in modeling, there's um, a reliance on other people's work, and you just have to trust them uh, with that. Uh, what what are the fertility rates? Uh, what are the education rates? Uh, all these things, for instance. Uh, and on the other end, uh, once you try to produce your uh, your projections, you you might start uh, coupling your model with other models that are experts in their own field of work, uh, land use, forestry, water use, and uh, climate models on the availability of hydro and, and water to cool down your power plants. It's a tree of dependencies uh, upstream and downstream. And what are the different types of models? The um, models that are used uh, uh, by well, my line of work and the, uh, the IPCC are called integrated assessment models. Uh, so these uh, look at the human system as a whole and its interaction to the natural system, ideally. Uh, so that involves the, uh, the economy, uh, land use, um, uh, and the energy system, all of them in interaction. Uh, I specifically work in the energy system, so you have uh, models that only look at that. But usually you try to couple them with, uh, with at least uh, economic models to, uh, to get a complete picture. Um, then on the type of models that exist, yeah, there are, uh, for instance, simulation models, which are system dynamic models where you uh, make a decision on your investments only with the knowledge that you have today and perhaps the limited anticipation of where you think uh, policy signals or prices will be tomorrow, as opposed to uh, optimization models or intertemporal optimization models, which uh, look at the whole pathway from today to whatever your endpoint is, 2050, let's say. And uh, by having the complete picture, they try to uh, optimize the investments over the whole period. So you might get different results from either of these two families. And there is no one type of model that better represents reality. It's just different two different mathematical formulations. So on a personal note, you mentioned being an engineer. How did you get into this work and how does your background in engineering motivate you or influence your work? Well, engineering is one way to come into this world. It's certainly useful to understand how energy is consumed and, and uh, transformed. Uh, but there are people coming at this from various points of view, uh, economics uh, mostly, actually. Um, well, myself, I was really influenced by reading Kim Stanley Robinson early in my life, actually. Uh, and uh, that certainly motivated me to uh, move towards uh, themes that are related to sustainable development. So is the issue all structural and there's nothing that, that individuals can contribute or do? Well, you can uh, have this discussion during municipal elections or you not just uh, elections, but daily, actually. <laughs> Uh, I know of people who were investing in uh, wind farms uh, of Copenhagen uh, 25 years ago or so. So they themselves were owners of a wind farm that they uh, they could look the actual infrastructure right in front of them in the port of Copenhagen. And they were part owners of that. So it's... Uh, 
this was much more motivating than uh, than being a uh, passively uh, well um, the energy system has uh, been set up in such a way that it's based on fossil fuels which are usually these bi these big plants or um, infrastructure that are far away from the eye and so when uh, renewables started uh, picking up you could see them all around uh, photovoltaics and wind and so it's uh, also satisfying as a person to feel closer to the energy that you're uh, consuming and being able to participate in that. So um, city scale uh, investments can also play a difference and you can become a part of it. What would you say the main takeaway is for you then about changing the energy system, decarbonizing the energy system? Uh, I think I think we will find along the way that all these discussions about uh, costs, how much does it cost uh, to reduce our emissions will be counterbalanced by all the positive effects that we rarely think about. Uh, change your lifestyle in order to uh, move more with bikes, uh, health benefits because of reduced air pollution and fewer cancers and uh, health impacts uh, related to air pollution. Uh, there's a myriad of uh, co-benefits related to changing your energy system to uh, renewables that we rarely talk about and uh, we are going to see happening. Yeah, people definitely underestimate how quickly human beings adjust. For example, we might all be used now to having fresh strawberries 24-7 every month of the year, but after a few years of having them in season, we'll just get used to that. I mean, we'll really start looking forward to strawberry season, uh, so to speak. So... Uh, no, it's great that you're a great, big um, Kim Stanley Robinson fan as well. I think his book is partly trying to get us to realize that truth, although maybe in more of a roundabout way. Yeah, there are not a lot of books like it, uh, really. <clears throat> and I'm glad it has the success it has because it uh, it talks to people who don't usually read science fiction. You know, it's, it's a much wider audience than, than that. And... Um, uh, and it tackles things not in the typical one-sided way of, you know, the, the future is uh, just solar punk and, uh, and communes, which is a great thing way to look at it, but it's not the only solution. I mean, it won't, not all people will be convinced, let's say. Uh, and then uh, not only looking things at things for, from a very top-down way. Uh, it tries to do both, you know. And one last thing I wanted to mention about the modeling, I often get asked by my friends, like, is humanity going to go extinct soon? Or is it catastrophe in our lifetimes or far off or uh, like in the next five years or 10 years? Yeah, the time left issue is uh, something difficult to communicate on because, you know, in the media, you are all uh, in the findings of our research. You're often pressed to have to compress them into one key number. And the, this number that you hear about, we only have 10 years left or 12 years. What was it two years ago? <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's not very satisfactory as a, as a summary of things. It's as if, you know, after that one, it's over or what? <laughs> and it's not the case. It's rather uh, more subtle than that. Yeah, I think people don't realize no matter what happens, we're all going to have to still live in the world 20 or 50 or 100 years from now. And we really need to focus on mitigating damage and, and on justice, like making life good and more livable for people who are going to suffer from the effects of disaster. But, uh, you know, it's not going to wipe out all of civilization. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, 2050 is, a, I mean, it's within the lifetimes of most of us, you know, it's not some super far away I mean, I mentioned 2050 because it's uh, the mid-century and all models usually went to, to that point. 
but it's also because um, all the net zero plans, long-term strategies that um, that countries express or often center around 2054 when they would reach zero emissions. So it's it's a big date. And we're going to live to see if we manage or not. <laughs> yeah, what's that proverb about cursing your enemies by saying, may you live in eventful times? Um, on that possibly slightly strange note, thank you so much to Energy Systems modeler, Kimon Karamanes, for appearing on this episode. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. You just heard Season 2, Episode 2 of Climate Futures, a podcast that talks to Harvard professors, activists, and experts about social, technical, and economic solutions to climate change. And this season, we're following along with Kim Stanley Robinson's science fiction novel, Ministry for the Future, and the big ideas, big solutions that it presents to climate change, and some of the big ideas, big solutions he left out of it. So this season, besides energy systems modeling, we're also going to be talking about medicine and climate change, indigeneity and climate change, what political theory can tell us about international climate governance. And last season, season one, we talked about solar geoengineering, we talked about climate blockchain, we talked about lawsuits on behalf of young children for climate justice, and even the very wonky idea of space-based solar power. So check those out if any of those sound interesting to you. That said, thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode with energy systems modeler Keeman Karamidas. I'm Annalisa Kingsbury, your host, and this this has been Climate Futures.